Hello. Uh, we'll be having a conversation today with um, one boy, Gijobi. But before I tell you a little bit about one boy, I wanted to apologize because um, I wasn't able to deliver on Three Nuggets Wednesday for last week Wednesday. Uh, I realized that uh, technology somehow sometimes can really humble you and we're still working on the back end uh, with the website and launching the newsletter was really a challenge so I want to apologize if you're anticipating getting the newsletter please forgive me um, we have now pushed the launch date for this Wednesday so if you haven't uh, subscribed to the newsletter what you can still do is you can go on the website uiukpong.com and uh, a pop-up will show up on this home screen you can read it and uh, insert your email address in there and now you will be receiving uh, the first issue of three nugget wednesday that is going to be this wednesday instead of last week wednesday so I said my apologies again. So let me tell you who Wamboye Gijobi is. She's an environmentalist, a media producer, a sales director with Survival Media Agency, an organization that works only with environmental and social justice organizations, NGOs, communities, and companies. She's a traveler hoping to travel to every country in the world. She currently has visited 49 countries and will be leaving for another phase of travel soon. She's a founder and director of 197 Education and Incubator Foundation. This organization works to improve the quality of education to underprivileged youth through sustainable programs like scholarships and virtual education. It also helps the students to transition from schools to their careers which is jobs, businesses through coaching and mentorship, and sometimes funding. She's an all-round cheerful and curious human. I believe after you listen to this wide-ranging conversation I had with her, that last sentence would definitely embody who Amboy is. So enjoy the show, and uh, I will talk to you at the end of it. Hello, everyone. I have got... A lady in my midst who is also a friend. And when she agreed to come on the show, I was very excited because of her story, especially her travel. Oh my God. <laughs> I hope you guys can't wait to hear that. And Wamboy is in our midst, and I wanted to say, Wamboy, how are you doing today? Hey, UI. It's such a pleasure being here. Fantastic. So, Wamboy is speaking to us from Kenya. And presently in Kenya, they had elections on August 9th. And the country is at a standstill waiting for the result of the presidential election. So I want to start the conversation by asking my boy, how is Kenya coping right now? Because, I mean, we're going to day six now or day five? Um, it's The elections are on Tuesday. So, yeah, it's about day five now since the elections. Ah, um, why is it taking so long for the results to come out? Is this normal or is this is this how it is typically? This is how it is. Actually, this is how it is typically. Nothing major has changed. It takes 
um, the governing body t- uh, has seven days to announce results, so they are still within time. And um, I mean, depending on whatever the issues are, then sometimes it takes between four to seven days. So I, I'd say this is very typical. Mm. So these seven days, is this in the constitution of Kenya yes. or this is, or it's in the constitution? Mm-hmm. Oh, because I've been very worried myself thinking that okay, if the result comes out now with the party that has lost with their um, fans or their the people that are so, their supporters, would they be able to handle it? Because I'm just like, this is dragging out. But if, that is, if this is normal according to political history in Kenya, then I guess... We all keeping our fingers crossed. Everyone is. Everyone is. Um, people are outside. It's very calm. Um, people are waiting. To be honest, there's just there's nothing we can do. There's a there's a body mandated to handle these things. So we are waiting for them to handle it. And when they are done within the seven days, then we'll hear for, from them. If not, there um, I'm sure there are ways in which they can handle this. There's the courts and there's the judiciary. So let's see how that plays out. But I'm very confident in us or um, Kenyans being able to handle this. I think we've been there in the past. Um, people have businesses to take care of. People have their own lives to worry about. And so, yeah, I think that's on top of everybody's mind, just keeping the calm, keeping the uh, keeping the patience because it's been some time, yeah? And so hoping that we'll have the results by the seventh day. So, so let me ask just for my own knowledge and probably for the audience as well. If by Tuesday, the IEBC, which is the body that looks after elections in Kenya, doesn't announce the results, what happens? Um, I'm not very sure because that's not where uh, my expertise lies. But okay. um, it, uh, under the constitution, I think then uh, they should be able to table their case to the judiciary. Uh, we still have a sitting president. So the president continues to handle the country until they announce the next president. And until the other president is sworn in, we still have a sitting president. Uh, you know, I, I was saying that was my last question on this topic, but this is actually my last question on this topic. When the leader, when the uh, winner is announced, you know, in the United States, typically there's always a fixed date for the next administration to be sworn in and out. Is that is that the same thing in Kenya? And when is that typically done? Um, I think uh, here in Kenya, what has typically typically happened? I'm sure there's something that it says there's a it's stated in the constitution, mm-hmm. but I haven't had the chance to read it uh, for sure. But what I've seen typically happen is when they announce the leader, then I think within that week then um, they, are, they, they are sworn in and after they are sworn in any day, they move into the state house and we are able to take in matters uh, regarding the state. So it's within a week. It does not take months here. Um, while I've seen in other countries, it sometimes takes some time before they pass on that power. Yeah, that's true. Well, one boy, I was very excited to bring you on the show because, you know, I've known you for a while now and you have traveled to 49 countries. Of the people that have come on the show so far, I would say you're probably the most traveled. <laughs> so my first question, starting with your travel background, is where did this travel urge or adventure begin? Hmm. Um, 
since I knew myself, I'd say. I think uh, since I was able to have that awareness in myself as a child, I always knew that I enjoyed being outside and I j- enjoyed um, um, traveling to places that I'd never been. Um, I remember my parents um, uh, taking me out to trips around the country when I was, you know, three or four or five years. And I remember that excitement and that has been building throughout my life. It hasn't really changed. And so the travel bag has been with me since I, you know, as early as I can remember, I've always enjoyed it. Hmm. So you were, of course, born in Kenya. And one of the things that I want this show to to speak to us as Africans, because I mean, you're you're a, you're a Kenyan, I'm originally from Nigeria. Is unfortunately our passports limits us to go to certain countries where we need to line up for visas, and for you to be able to travel to, to those many number of countries, of course, there are obstacles and loopholes and visas that you needed to go through. So. When you started this journey, when did you start? What age? And did you even know about those obstacles? And how did you overcome them? And how did you even dare to even say, I want to go to one, I think 149 countries that is recognized by the United Nations? I think that's even the name of one of your charities, I guess. Yes, it's 197. Oh, 97. And okay. Yes, 197. Um, yes, I was aware of the restrictions that we have as Africans. And I'm not just going to say Africans. I think uh, a lot of Asian countries as well face the same issue um, with regards to travel as we do. And um, I, it became very clear to me later on in life when I decided I wanted to travel to all of the countries. Uh, but, you know, previously... Um, I started traveling more outside of the country um, because of my work. I am an environmentalist. And so, um, as we know, environmental issues are mostly transboundary. And therefore, we need to discuss these issues uh, with people from other countries as well. And so what happens um, is most of the time I'd find myself really struggling to give dates on when I'd show up because I did not really know when I'd show up because then you'd go to present your papers to the embassies and they were very, uh, and use the word snobbish around you. And then you were like, okay, so I think I'm less than, you know, I thought I was. And, um, and sometimes there were refusals, sometimes there were yeses. And so that's when I actually realized there's something called passport power. And that's when I realized that there are some people that have more access to the world than I did. And um, this just came about when it became uh, very clear to me that that was something that I would face traveling uh, the world. I think the first thing I did was first of all, just embrace it because there's no way I'll change that in a day. It's, it's bigger than me. It's one of those systematic issues that uh, lie uh, not just for me, but I mean, for all the citizens of um, Africa and some of the Asian countries. And uh, I think a majority of the Asian countries, I dare say even some of the uh, Oceania and Central American countries too. So these systematic issues are way bigger than me. They are historical, they are political. And so embracing that and realizing and telling myself that I wanted to do it regardless. 
whether that was a challenge or not, my passion for travel uh, was way more than that issue. And so, yeah, that's where I have been with um, that passport issue or that visa issue. Mm. So, so the travel to the 49 countries began because of conferences with environmental issues. And then when did, how did it transition to personal? Um, I first started traveling outside of uh, Kenya, first of all, when I was a child with my parents, and that was in East African, uh, other East African countries like Tanzania and Uganda. But that was when I was way younger. And then uh, later on, after school and um, after starting to work, um, started traveling outside of the country. And uh, in these spaces, uh, I was, uh, you know, meeting people from various backgrounds, discussing. And most of the time, you'd hear people, you know, wanting to meet up after the conferences and discussing their travels after the conferences. And that was very intriguing for me. And uh, most of the time I'd want to stay longer than the conference just to, you know, explore places and people and cultures and historical things that I'd learned about in school that I wanted to explore for myself. And so um, thereafter, I think I was 27 when I encountered... Um, uh, this woman, Cassie DiPeco, who is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name like, uh, right, I, um, but Cassie had just traveled to all the countries of the world and she was the first woman to do so. And that was very intriguing to me. I was, hold, hold, I was, a second, hold a second. Where did you meet Cassie, yeah. first of all, if I may ask? Not meet. I just saw her um, article on CNN uh, oh, okay, okay. back in 2017 yes not 2017 i think yes and that was one of the best articles i've ever read you know um in some time and in my whole life because it it awakened something to me in inside of me it helped me realize that first of all it was 2017 and i did a bit of research and realized she was the first woman to do so travel to all the countries of the world and i realized at that point that there had been more than a hundred men that had done that in the past. And so it was, you know, <laughs> weird for me <laughs> to realize mm -hmm. that it had taken a hundred other men to, you know, for the first woman to do that. And it was 2017. I thought that maybe there would be someone who had traveled to that many countries. And also I knew what barriers my passports had, but this was an American woman. The world was accessible to her. Her passport could get her to around 180 something countries without visas or visas on entry. Nobody had to do background checks on her. So if that woman was able to do that in 2017, I was very curious at about how much time it would take or how long it would take for someone like me to do the same. And then, you know, asking myself the same things like what makes my soul burn with passion? travel does and so after that it was very easy to answer that question that i'd want to do the same and um do it with my kenyan uh passport and see how that was gonna work out mm. how is it like traveling okay I, I you know we have been friends for a while and one of the things that connected us as friends was travel and i hear when i talk to women especially black women that you are, you can do what you're doing because you're a guy. And I'm like, no, I have actually traveled and also seen women also travel, but they're like, most of the time, those women are Caucasian. How is it like traveling as a black woman most of your trips solo? 
I mean, is it a different mental orientation or for you is just easy peasy? Oh, it can never be easy peasy, UI. It's never easy peasy. It's normal for a woman, and I'd say a woman, whether it's Caucasian or Black, first of all, uh, there are things that we have to watch out for more than, I, I, I'd say more than men. And for sure, because I've never lived my life out as a man, there are things that I'm not aware of that you probably look out for. But as for me, there are things, of course, regarding security and safety, things that I have to watch out for, how late I can stay somewhere, Am I able to go out clubbing if I go in another country or do I have to spend all my nights indoors because I'm afraid of going somewhere and what might happen to me if I'm by myself? Uh, Uber rides and, and taxi rides, mm, do people Uber feel rides. safe for me or mm. do they not feel safe for me? That's something you have to really be cautious about. People might not know that you have these thoughts, but you surely have these thoughts because you do, you've never been there. You don't know the right way to the place that you want to go yeah this is someone who has you in their car they can decide at any one point to take you anywhere how are you going to be able to work that out and so you're constantly trying to have extra conversations with the uber drivers to have them to just check them out or you know trying to let them know that you're with people in that country even when you know you're solo just to ensure that you know you keep yourself safe um you have to watch out for yourself. You are you. You are walking down a street. You have to look this way and that way to check if there are people walking behind you. Just there are different ways as a woman. You just have to exist. And this sometimes I feel like that exists whether you're traveling and whether or or not. But it is mostly it comes out mostly when you're traveling and when you're traveling solo. Of course, when I'm with other people, there's some comfort. Like I have. I have experience in myself, me being locked up uh, and, and not going out as much in terms of night outs. And then when I was able to meet up with other people, then I could go out and just enjoy night outs because I knew that I had the safety of the numbers. And so mm. for sure, there are certain differences, very, um, they are tiny, but then they affect how you're able to do life. In, even the how, um, I'd say even, even the financial bit of your traveling, it's going to affect that because you just can't go sleep anywhere. You want to be in the safest, most secure place in the city or you want to be with um, you. Sometimes you can't, uh, you don't want to take Ubers, you want to take public transport so that nothing happens to you or you want to take, mm. you don't want to take public transport, you want to take Ubers, depending on where you are. So I think um, it really does affect that first of all as a woman and then as a black woman i think what has come out <laughs> to me um has been first of all the curiosity and so the curiosity that other people have about me being in certain places uh, including immigration officers it's like how where you're from kenya how are you here like what's what's going on it's just for tourism and they sometimes they don't even know what the law says about me being there whether it's visa free or do i need a visa and there's all there's always this curiosity with um i'd say with people that i've seen as a black woman um number two um as I've seen very many people, I don't know whether you've seen this on social media, but people wanting to take pictures with you all the time and touch your hair and asking whether this is real or not. Just taking numerous pictures. One time I remember um, this happens 
this happened to me mostly in um, Central America and where I meet Asians. Is mm. uh, I remember this bus coming and it had a lot of Asian tourists. And when they came out to the monument that they were coming to see, they all did not go to the monument. They just queued next to me to take pictures with me. And I was like, serious? I am the attraction site now. Wow. <laughs> and what happens with these pictures when you take them home? Are you like just showing everybody, hey, I was with a black person, I was with a black woman? It's, it's very strange, I think. But on the other hand, I also see that um, a little bit as curiosity, but I'm also very wary of what that kind of looks like because um, we've seen how things can go downhill. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it gets to be a little different. And I think also there's some uh, curiosity that tends to be not um, as uh, benevolent. It's, it's towards a, a, a dark side. So um, that happens too. And um, you just learn to live with it and you just learn to get yourself away from such situations. That is very interesting you share all that because you see, I did a trip to Costa Rica and that trip, the mission was to live on $12 a day. And I won't lie to you, one boy, I never thought about security. I never thought about where would I sleep. And I was very blessed that I was able to connect with people and people were like, hey, they listened to the mission of their trip and they're like, why don't you come crash at my place? And then that way you're able to save your $12 a day. Listening to you talk now, unfortunately, you have to be conscious of where you sleep, unlike me where I'm just like, whatever, where I sleep and stuff doesn't really matter. So it's, it's interesting to, to, to hear your viewpoint as a woman in that kind of scenario. So that means you cannot really be as adventurous as a man would in terms of trying to say, I want to do a, a trip and I'm going to live on $12 a day. That's very true. That's very true, UI. I think there are some things that just exist uh, generally in life, um, with the safety and security of women just because um, of the dangers that uh, we are met with, just because of the way we exist um, in different genders. And I dare say that um, it's sad that that happens because uh, what I've also seen and when I was traveling most of the time, when I was mostly traveling in that period of time when I was mostly traveling, um, people would send me articles of other women who would face uh, dangers like who'd been killed in Morocco, or killed in uh, New Zealand, or in this other place. And those articles were, I know it's people who cared about my safety and they just wanted me to be more cautious and more worried. But it's rare when you hear, uh, to hear such things happening uh, with uh, men, I'd say. But I know men face their own issues and I don't want to minimize the issues that men uh, men face but i've also never existed as a man so i'm not able to speak to those issues so i'll speak to the ones that i know as a woman right and um i know this very 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 courageous guy who took this trip he walked um along africa from southern africa to the southernmost point of africa to the northernmost point of africa called mario mario yes he, he walked. walked and he's from he's he's from canada yeah he did walk. Oh, wow. He's called no Mario. And and he's he's an amazing, courageous black guy who did this. He's from um I think Tux and Kaikos, and then he lives in he lives in Canada, I think. But he that was an amazingly courageous journey. He walked. I could never dream of doing something like that. 
Oh, I, I'm not very sure I'd make it. I'm I'm scared of driving. Damn. So hold a second. He, he, walked, so, yeah. he walked from South Africa to the Cape Point, which is the southernmost point, I think. And then he walked up, up north to Africa, to like Morocco, Algeria area. Yes, he did walk from, it was from South Africa up north. His journey was from South up north to the, it's called Mario Rigby. Mario Rigby. Yeah, Mario. So M-A-R-I-O. Then his second name is R-I-G-B-Y. Wow, I'm going to check him out. That is interesting. Yes. He walked from Cape Town to Cairo. So that was crazy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So for, so for you, what's the, in, in all your travel, what's the, is, have you ever experienced something that was really hairy situation and how did you handle that? Um, generally, I try to keep myself from those type of situations because I don't want to handle them in the first place. But when they happen, sometimes they happen. I think some of my most um, interestingly hairy situations have been once in Guatemala, we had this uh, tax, not taxi, tour van to take us to Tikal, one of the best um, ancient mm-hmm. um uh, Maya uh, settlements back in the day and it was truly a beautiful experience and so the 12 one was to take us down to Tikal at uh, 5.45 I think in the morning and then we'd explore the area until 3 and then we'd go back to the parking where we'd find the tour, tour van to take us back home and Tikal someone people who've been to Tikal know that Tikal is in a forest right so we go back to the tour van and it's at 3 p.m and you know that's when most of the guests that come to visit are being picked up and our tour van is not there and we wait and we wait and the tour van does not come and then we realize that they're not gonna come because we are unable to reach them and they're not picking up and so we needed to find our way out and uh, most of the tour vans were full but then towards the end we we found this other tour van that had space for four people and we were four people who had um, hired the other tour van and uh, they were able to take us back out to where we were staying and um, on the way back this van was driving so fast my heart (laughs) i was literally holding my you know i was trying to hold on to sanity because it was really driving fast and i was trying to communicate to them i don't speak spanish and the person who spoke spanish in the group was sleeping comfortably i do not know why they were able to sleep comfortably through that drive and that was scary for me i mean just the, the anxiety of us being left in this forest and then there's this driving driver and this this person who I'm supposed to be with translating and he's sleeping and anyway it was just um, one of the most <laughs> weird days of my solo travels um, and then one of the other ones I remember um, was in Panama and this was just a weird moment between me and an Uber driver where um, I had stayed at this hostel for about three days and I was tired and I wanted to, you know, take, I wanted to spend the rest of my time in Panama at a good hotel. And so I booked a space at this very nice hotel. And um, 
So I took this Uber driver to that hotel from the hostel and uh, I paid. And then on my way back to pick up the my stuff, my bags from the hostel, um, he made this comment around, so um, did you find a man to take you to this place now? You're going to be, a, you're going to have a, a good time. And I was so hurt by that statement and I was not supposed to feel hurt by that statement. I should have let it go. But it really did stick with me. And I was like, what do you think I am or we are? Or how do you, how do you live your life like that? Just assuming things like that. And yeah, so I think those are one of the weirdest moments. But other than that, I've really generally mostly had very good and enjoyable moments during my travels, whether solo or not. Which 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 do you prefer? Do you prefer traveling solo, or do you like to travel with someone or in a small group? Um, to be honest, I I think I do prefer. My preference is traveling with someone, but I also know that my goal is very different uh, from many people, and I'd hate to drag someone along with my goal and my uh, my 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 passion of being to uh, going to every country. So. Um, what I do is I do not mind traveling solo. So I'm not going to say that I hate it. No, I actually enjoy it. Whether it's with someone or it's with people, I will enjoy travel anyway it's uh, given to me and anyway it comes to me or I seek it. But um, I do enjoy traveling with someone. Then it makes it easier. It just makes it just, it's easier. I can relax. It's more, the anxiety is way less on very many things and uh, but what I there are so many advantages to traveling solo as well because um, what I've learned is when I travel with people or with someone is there's this kind of like a bubble that we stay in because we can communicate and I you don't learn the other language as faster and as you you're not as curious about other people because there's always this thing or this you have a bubble that you can stay in there's a comfort uh, comfort zone that you are in that is not available for you when you're solo traveling which I really enjoy about solo travel which I think is something that for me um, is way more rewarding than traveling with people mm. I, I totally agree with you because that comment you made about experiencing the place where you are when you travel with someone if you travel with someone you find that you don't really want to explore because maybe the other person doesn't really want to explore. But when you're traveling solo, you find that you really have to, as a social being and as a place, as a person in a foreign place, you really need to connect with people because these people could be your survival in a situation. And it forces you to break out from your shell or from whatever phobia or fear you're in because you know that I need to communicate to these people if I really want, first of all, for my survival to if I want to enjoy this place where I am presently. And that was one thing I experienced when I went to Costa Rica where I don't speak Spanish. I actually had uh, booked my hotel, well, not hotel, hostel, where I was going to stay after I cleared immigration. <laughs> so you really have to break out. And then I remember when I took my box and went into the bus for the first time and surrounded with people that don't look like me, nobody looked like me. And one of the things I had to do was to look for someone with a name tag and I saw IBM, so I knew for him to work in IBM, he must speak a little bit of English. <laughs> so it's all these little survival skills you pick up that 
unfortunately, the formal education never teaches you. There is no teacher that would have told me, if you see IBM or someone's speaker, that person could speak a little bit of English and he might just help you with this trip. So I totally agree with you for sure. So the other question I wanted to ask now is, your mission is to travel to 197 countries. After doing 49, is the excitement still there to still accomplish this goal? Oh, yes. Oh, man. I dream about that all the time. I keep thinking to myself of that day when I'll be at that 197th country. <laughs> the excitement. And I know after I'm done, I'm still going to be like, okay, so where am I going to go to next? So I'm sure <laughs> there's no way. I don't feel like there's any day I will wake up and 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 there's the 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 possibility of travel and think or feel like I do not want to do it. I hope that day doesn't come because I want to be as excited and as curious about places and people uh, and as and as open-minded uh, as as I've always been about travel. So the excitement is still there what has changed for me several things have changed for me for sure and it is covid and the tests mm. are really uncomfortable i mean every time you have to get on a plane and you know someone has to put something in your nose and your throat down your throat it's 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 not fun it's that's i don't like it so i hope that we can figure out how to get i hope they figure out another way of doing these tests or you know, do away with the tests completely. I don't know. But that has really changed what travel is. It has become quite expensive too to travel. Sure. Um, I don't know uh, what has happened. I think it's because of, uh, I think there's just a very large shift where people didn't travel for two years and now everybody is trying to get out and so travel has become quite expensive. Um, uh, th three is the fact that I think also my goals for traveling now have shifted a little bit and I, I i really want travel for me for the rest of the countries where where it can be to be wholesome and to mean something because um uh the traveling also helped me start a foundation around education and around uh, exposure for students and so um nowadays when i'm trying to explore countries i find myself seeking similar foundations that i can go and learn from that our students that we work with can also interact with uh, people working in different areas and in different sectors in these other countries and so there are some changes in there but uh um, it's largely it largely remains very exciting for me. Mm. All right, so we're going to take a water break here, and uh, we're just going to end this part of the conversation, and we will come back uh, for part two. So stay with us. So we are back with Wamboy, the environmentalist, travel enthusiast, as well as a foundation operator. So I, the last question I asked uh, Wamboy on the other side before we took a water break was. Does she still have the same enthusiasm to travel to 197 countries as she did when she first started? And now the question I want to ask her is, how do you pick this the first 49 countries you went to? Because if one way ready to do the math, you're basically gone to one quarter of the countries on Earth back then. And now that you're about to begin this adventure again, are you is the is the criteria that you used back then the same because you've gotten older, you've gotten wiser, your bodies have changed as well. Is it the same selection criteria? How do you choose to go to these countries? Um, 
I'm not gonna say that it's changed that much because even before um, the factors that determined where I'd travel to, and one of them was work. I work, and so I need to be able to work um, as I travel. <clears throat> and when um, I have breaks from work, then um, I should take the, like how I choose where I travel is first of all as an environmentalist, which is you know a question that comes uh, very quickly after I tell someone that I also love traveling. We know that one of the most polluting, um, one of the massive, massive uh, contributors to global warming is the aviation industry and the travel industry at large. And so how do I, how do I marry the two and merge the two? So what I do most of the time is I fly cross continents and, and if, I can't drive or take a car or a train uh, in the continent. That's when I fly. And then uh, for neighboring countries and countries that are closer, I try to take buses and I try to take trains. And so what I enjoy mostly is learning and immersing myself into the cultures of the countries that I travel to. And so that's one of the reasons I really enjoy traveling by bus. And so most of the time is I'll try to go to neighboring countries. If I go to, say, for example, um, Guatemala, then I know I can take a bus to El Salvador. I know I can take a bus to different cities of um, um, Honduras and Nicaragua and even probably Costa Rica and so, and even Panama. And so that's one of the journeys I actually took mostly by road from Mexico all the way down to Panama. And so um, that's mostly how I pick. A, if my work takes me somewhere like um, Europe, um, say, for example, Spain, then I'll be able to travel to the countries surrounding Spain uh, using trains. And uh, mostly that was what, that's what has happened in the past. So the only thing that has is now being added into the, in the second phase of my travel is the fact that with my foundation and me wanting to explore similar foundations and people who work in the same uh, line of work as I do and trying to learn from them is I seek them out. So I'm not, you know, just... Um, trying to learn about history and culture but i'm also trying to learn about innovation in that country i'm trying to learn about education and innovation in that country and so that is the one aspect that has changed in my next phase of travel and how i how i research before uh, going to these spaces is i'm trying to research what's happening what's the innovation culture in that country what's uh what's what's happening and can i get involved in that space can i meet some people who are uh in that space too when i travel to those countries and reach i reach out to them beforehand so that's the major thing that has changed other than that is i still I will travel to work or I will pick a country that I want to visit and then also travel to the neighboring countries around it before I'm back home. So traveling within Europe is, is, is easy because of the train system and Ryanair, one pound. Of course, you've been an environmentalist trying to always reduce your carbon footprint. Traveling within Central America and uh, South America, is, it's something that people have done so many times, backpacking. We are Africans and you are in Kenya. I was also in Kenya just recently before I came back to Canada here. Traveling within the continent of Africa, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, I mean, <laughs> I've not done it. I've only been to four African countries. You probably have been to more. Can you achieve that same goal 
like doing that in Europe and South and Central America in Africa with the infrastructure issues that we have? If you've been to several countries in Africa, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. I have been to 12 countries in Africa so far. And um, that's not many, noting that Africa has 54 countries. And so um, one of the major differences that we have, of course, with Europe is that we don't have trains majorly that's one of the big differences secondly is that uh, air transportation is not as um, cheap as it is in uh, in europe right but then um uh, road transport and road transportation using buses is really cheap in africa it, is it tends to be very cheap in africa yes it is um say for example a bus ride from nairobi kenya where i live to uh kampala uganda and then maybe to kigali rwanda would probably be around 30 to 40 dollars or 50 dollars at maximum which makes it very affordable for people who want to traverse through those two countries and enjoy and the buses will stop at different towns and you get to see different towns you can stop if you want to and take the next bus to the next space so it tends to be quite cheap and so that's doable and so one has to appreciate the differences between the two places and so that you are able to completely immerse yourself in the space as it is now, because we are still working towards that growth and, you know, our road systems are still developing. Uh, most of the time, our road system is quite nice. And um, I think you are able, from Kenya, I'm, I know very many people that have driven to South Africa and back. And that means driving through Tanzania, driving through Zambia, driving through Zimbabwe, Botswana, all the way into South Africa. And the road network all the way down tends to be, most of the time, okay for, um, for traveling. So I think it is quite... Um, possible to if you're open-minded enough and if you are um, um, curious enough and you can you do your research to be able to travel into these places i know i have backpacked through um uh, rwanda burundi and the eastern some eastern parts of drc and most of the time sometimes i even took lifts from lorries and drivers and other types of drivers so i i don't think it's that crazy it's doable wow you know i think i'm sharing or asking the question with my experience of being nigerian and it, i think one of the things i was very shocked about in kenya is how kenyans do week uh weekend day day trips or week weekend trips on friday the, the city is empty people are going out to Kajado and different parts of the country. And then Sunday evening, Naivasha Road is clogged up because people coming back. In Nigeria, unfortunately, we can't do that because there are lots of armed robbery on the roads, a lot of bandits on the roads. There's a lot the, the road system is really, really bad and stuff. So a lot of people travel by air just to go to another small town in the, in the country. And you won't believe it too that driving within Nigeria is also a status thing as well. So if if you if if I told someone that I drove from Lagos, which is the commercial city in Nigeria, to where I'm from, which is Akwaibom State, I'm actually looked down upon. Whereby in Kenya, it's a really big thing. People drive from Nairobi to Nakuru, to Naivasha, to uh, Nanyuki, 
nobody flies there really. So I think that's why I was asking the question from that standpoint. And I'm glad that you highlighted it because I think uh, if someone listening to this that wants to travel within the continent knows that that option is there. So thanks for sharing. So the other question I want to ask before I transition here to your career is, how have you been able to afford going to 49 countries? Is this been self-funded or is there a corporation funding you and saying, provide your experiences on our blog? <laughs> because I think when I first met you and you told me you traveled to 49 countries, I was like, how did she pull that off from a financial perspective? Because one of the things I hear from people is we are saving to travel when we get older. And I don't know if you've seen that meme of people in Venice sleeping on the, on the cano now that they can afford it. And people, people not traveling when they are young. So how have, you, how, have you, how have you been able to pull this off? Wow, you speak of two large misconceptions I think I've heard about travel and, you know, what people largely assume around travel. First of all, people really assume that travel is expensive. And you see, that's the thing. Like, I've just given an example around traveling from uh, Nairobi to Kampala and from Kampala to Kigali, which is from Kenya to Uganda and then to Kigali. And then if you wanted to continue, you could actually take that same, you could, again, take public transportation to Burundi. And if you wanted to continue, you could take public transportation to eastern part of DRC, then back through uh, Tanzania and then back to Kenya again. It's very possible to do that with a smaller budget than you would be able to uh, achieve the same thing uh, while flying because that would be much more expensive. And, you know, there's this, um, I'm not sure if you've heard about this thing around youth power and money. And it seems like you always have two and then not the other one. So sometimes you have youth and then you have that energy, but then you don't have the money. And then you tend to have the money and then you have the, the, uh, the no, time. I think it's time. Time is the other thing. So time is the other thing. Sometimes you're old and that's, that's the same thing with the boat ride that you're talking about in Venice. I, I've encountered numerous old couples, um, asleep in canals in Amsterdam, asleep in, in boat rides in Greece, asleep, you know, they paid money to experience these things, but they don't have the energy to keep them awake to be able to enjoy that. But, um, these trips, are not necessarily, they do not necessarily have to be expensive unless then you're bound in that societal, casual look of, you know, what people see and what people imagine that travel must look like, you know. It doesn't have to be this very luxurious thing that um, if you're trying to impress people, then that would be something that, that you get caught up in. If you're trying to impress yourself and quench the past that you have and and be able to enjoy the history and geography. And to be honest, I feel like one of the biggest things I've realized about travel is books and people and videos can try to explain these essences of people of places to you. But until you get there, until you breathe the experience, until you eat the food, until you speak with the people, until you catch the warmth of another stranger who offers you kind of kindness without knowing you and without, uh, you know, so much more kindness that sometimes you never even receive at home, then you do not know, you do not 
you cannot really say that you know how to travel. You cannot really put that in a book. You cannot put that in a picture and tell somebody that, oh, this is what it was. Until someone goes there to see for themselves, for themselves, they really cannot understand. So that's one of the things that I've realized that travel does not have to be expensive depending on what you want and it can be what you want you know there are people that want to have luxury travel you can achieve that as well but then it doesn't have to be that's not the point like if you want yeah. to do it then it doesn't have to be and and so um it does not require massive amount of resources number two um how i've been able to manage the funding of these trips is of course i've, I've funded them myself um i realized earlier on that i was too lazy to meet deadlines for people you know if i blog for people i'm not gonna write that article in time i'm gonna go somewhere <laughs> someone is gonna tell me there's something happening i would i will want to go and experience it more than write an article so that I, it can fund my travel. So I have always wanted that autonomy for myself and that uh, uh, that largely freedom for myself to do what I want to do. And so that means that most, most of the times I have to fund for the travel unless, that, unless it's a work trip. And if it's a work trip and it's funded, then I really try to milk those type of trips and go to neighboring countries so that I can also uh, enjoy myself while traveling more. Um, one of the things I realized also uh, with that is um, one of the biggest lessons I learned uh, around travel was also that I learned that I had a fear of dealing with money and fear of facing my financial situations. And, 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 you know, then I, I got to mismanage my funds and I got to make, you know, traveling will mean that sometimes you'll make a few uh, expensive mistakes. You'll take this option instead of this other one, because you did not know that that was available for you. And so I've mismanaged some things. And, um, but then largely I've learned how to, I think in the last few years, I've become a better manager of my money than before. And that is, I think largely I'd, um, I'd, uh, give it to, I, I would, uh, attribute it to, uh, traveling. Mm -hmm. it, it, before I segue here with all 49 countries you've visited, if someone is listening to this and says, I would like to hear from one boy, which of this which of which country of the forty nine was the one that you had the best experience you, you and you would go again? Which which would it be? Uh, one, that one is hard. If you tell me to pick one, one is very hard. Give me a range. Okay, let me say three. What's your top three? three. Or what's your what what's your three? Mm. My three, my three, my top three. And, and, so you, and your three, your three, and why? Mm. <laughs> my three would be Mexico. The first one would be Mexico just because of the range. I mean, there's just so many different, fast, the range geographically is just amazing. There's cenotes. I've never seen cenotes in my life. I've never yeah. cenotes. Cenotes, they're these underground uh, water uh, caves that exist on the Yucatan and uh, Eastern side of Mexico. So oh. Cancun, Yucatan and, and, and in Bacalar down in the South, they have these very, very beautiful underground water caves that are blue greenish and, and they're just so gorgeous. I have never seen anything like that in my whole life. And 
then you move to the to the to the uh to the mid even yeah the mid towards mexico city and there's all these uh, uh pyramids that i thought when i was growing up i learned about pyramids in 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 Egypt and in Sudan yeah. and in Ethiopia. But I did not know that across in the world, in another place, there were people building very similar structures and cultures that were, you know, very similar to what that was happening here in Africa. Nobody said that. It was in no book. I could mm -hmm. have never known that these things existed. And so there's that range and learning what happened in the Mayan cultures and that spans all the way down, of course, to uh, South America. And that was such a learning experience for me and just understanding how science and 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 people understanding uh, how to, uh, to 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 time seasons using you know using different ways and 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 building their their pyramids according to these different seasons and being able to time the year it was just mind blowing to me to be honest and then on the other side there's just um, so much more to see in terms of beaches and just to, to be honest, Mexico blew my mind. I didn't have enough time and I'd go back because I think there's way more to explore. I'd, I'd take a month, I'd take two and go back to Mexico and just try to, you know, visit as much more as I can. And plus the food, the food is quite incredible, to be honest. The street food is amazing. That cheap too. Um, the second country that I enjoyed massively um, was... I'd want to say Greece, but I'm torn between Greece and Switzerland because Switzerland is a massively just beautiful country and it's very, and I'd say not just Switzerland, but that region like Austria, Switzerland, uh, France, and just that, but Switzerland in itself, because it kind of just embodies all of it, is it's the Alps there and the lakes and it's just beautiful and just driving down any of those roads is very beautiful. Uh, and I want to say Greece and the, the second one, uh, the third one being Greece, because then there's the beaches on one side and the small islands and they are very beautiful. Uh, the architecture is amazing. And then in the north, there's just very the backdrops of the mountains and the hills and the large caves. It's its its amazing. Greece is geographically very beautiful. And then the cultures around that as well, and the Roman culture and everything that happened in Greece is just very different. And then in Africa, DRC. And DRC, wow. People don't talk about DRC in terms of tourism for some reason. Yet, it's the most beautiful country I've ever been in Africa that is that rich. I mean, the forests are so thick. You're literally just, you know, sometimes it's as dark as night during the day under the canopies of that thick vegetation. It reminds me, I've never been uh, to South America and I I'm curious what the Amazon looks like, but DRC reminds me of a place like when I watch these documentaries with David at Attenborough, it just reminds me of, of DRC because DRC is largely very geographically rich. It is very beautiful. It is very green and it's massive. The rivers are the biggest I've seen in Africa. I've not seen rivers that big in Africa other than in DRC. They have gorillas. They have, they have, the ecosystem in DRC is amazing and 
again, it's a very rich country. And I see sometimes I understand why people just want to plunder because they want to take and take and take because it's very, very rich. It can give. And so I think that's the one country in Africa that has really surprised me in terms of its beauty. This is the perfect segue to ask a question now about your career because um, knowing you, you're very entrepreneurial. Uh, I, I know one of your business uh uh, I don't want to say idols, but someone that you last year, 2021, you were enamored by was Jack Dorsey. Um, so in terms of how did you get into, how did you get interested in environmentalism and how did you decide to become an environmentalist? Because in Africa, let's be honest, I mean, most of our parents want us to do the accounting, the lawyer, the medical medicine kind of job. So telling your parents you want to be an environmentalist, environmentalist, they're like, what's that? So where did that come from for you? <laughs> to be honest, they still do not know what I do. They cannot <laughs> describe it to anyone. They're still trying to hook me up with jobs <laughs> in the banking industry or something. <laughs> They don't think I work and then I largely work from home, which makes it very hard to convince them that I actually work. So um, um, growing up and uh, being exposed to travel at an early age um, got me in touch with the environment and with geography, which I still think is one of the best subjects that I ever encountered in schools. In school, I feel that if I knew what I know now, I would have really enjoyed geography even more. And sometimes I try to pass that down to students, to students that I encounter because, I mean, travel is largely geography that we learn in school. We just get to experience it now, live. And so um, being in school, I enjoyed uh, geography very much. I enjoyed the sciences very much. I really enjoyed knowing you know, the sciences, the physics, the biology, how chemicals interact with each other and just learning that all that was is just learning how the world works how potassium moves down from this to this to this how it's the same thing that you light a match is the same potassium that you eat in a banana it's crazy right like just understanding these different states of chemis of, of of chemicals and the chemistry of how these exist and how biology utilizes all of this differently and then managing math and physics i really enjoyed that uh while i was in school and then the fact that uh traveling also taught me to see how that interacts with nature then um had me uh, i think environmentalism had me hooked because right after school then there was Wangari Mathai, and I do not know whether you know of this woman, but she was the first Nobel Prize winner for from Kenya. And she won the Nobel Prize for Environment because she was an activist um, uh, from Kenya. She passed on a few years ago, uh, but she was this woman, fierce woman that would fight anyone to keep the sanctity of the environment uh, as it was. I mean, there were places in this Nairobi, I know you encountered Nairobi, the parks that exist now exist because of her. She would tie herself to trees and refuse for those spaces to be um, demolished and trees to be cut. She would be jailed from time to time, but she was fiercely fighting for something that I had never seen someone fight for. And she fought capitalism for what it stood for. And she she encouraged people to see nature and not just as 
money and resources, but something we draw from and also give back to, to see nature as one with us. And so that was right after my high school. And to be honest, I didn't have a choice after that. It was the most logical thing to do. And I know I tried to do accounts and I tried for a year and that just did not sit well with me. And so it was, I went then into environmentalism and I went to my environmental science class and the first year was the most magical for me. And so the deal was sealed. And um, after that, I think, I'm not sure that many people would say that, but me in High in uh, in campus in uh, the uni in university was among the best years of my life. I was just absorbing and I was just knowing and learning. And thankfully, um, our courses because it's environment you have to go out to see. We traveled a lot. We went through out regions in Kenya, just learning about ecosystems, why plants grow where they grow, why animals exist the way they exist, and the cycles that exist between all of us. And so that was one of the most enriching experiences in my, in my life. And so it was very easy for me to take that as a career. It filled my soul with so much joy that I know that I would. I would not be doing anything else. Is it a straightforward path to be an environmentalist in Kenya or you're the one that has to kind of build your own curriculum in a way? It is pretty well established, I'd say, today. And right now, it's pretty well established. I think um, in most spaces, um, not just in Kenya, what I've seen in most spaces where I've traveled in the Caribbean, I have very many friends in the Caribbean that work in the environmental sector, that work in these sustainability spaces, not just in Africa, but uh, I've worked with people in West Africa, in South Africa that deal with environment and sustainability. And um, the the schooling system and the syllabuses are very well established at this point and uh, it is very easy right now to get into that as a career i think anyone who would be dreaming of getting into that as a career what i've seen that makes a difference is my um how i i i would say just i think i'd use the word segue because that's i'm not your normal environmentalist in terms of like i'm not in these spaces um um, you know, having conversations around these issues, whether it's climate change, whether it's gender justice, whether it's racial justice, whether it's energy, water, climate justice, any of these things. I'm not in those spaces doing that. I'm in there recording and I document. And so I'm a media person within uh, the environment uh, sector, which is different and which most people are not uh, accustomed to and which I think fell into my laps. I think things just flowed together for me, to be honest, because I finished school um, and I was writing very much at that time. I was blogging very much at that time. And, you know, I met these other media makers in that same space and we formed an agency and th that took off and we've been doing that for the last 10 years. Mm. And I presume this agency is Survival, the Survival Media Agency right now? Yes, it's Survival Media Agency. Uh, so before we go to survival media agency, another thing that is part of your background is activism. How did activism, how did it come to you? I mean, have you always been an activist right from when you were a kid? Well, I mean, you, you're, one of your role models is Wangari Mathai, so I guess <laughs> it, it basically has always been around you. But how did activism come around? Did your parents kind of encourage you to question things or 
how, how did it come about? <laughs> That's very funny. I, I, I will send this to my dad and my mom to listen to just for this part. Because they did not. <laughs> they 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 hired me quite a lot for being very. I was very inquisitive as a child, and I did not like following things just because you say so. I wanted to know the reasons behind why we were doing things, and um, I think one of the things that I had to do as a grown up and also as an activist was unlearn a lot of things, and embrace a lot of things that made me me. In terms of courage, I find myself, I find that courage comes to me very naturally. And uh, I find that I seek it when I lack it. And it's easy for me to stand up for things that I believe in, uh, whether and question power, um, seek its roots, why it exists the way it exists, and whether it's that for me or for others. I've seen this even when I travel and when we are at immigration and they are trying to question whether I'm an immigrant or a tourist. I've seen that it's not, it's, it's not hard for me to stand up for myself. It comes very naturally for me to, to have that conversation with that person and be like, why are you showing up the way you are right now? What makes you question me? and not the 10 other people that I was standing in line with. I find that it comes that easily for me. That we brand that as activism is what I just found in this world. But I find that as just courage to stand up for what you believe in. And um, and mostly for things that are like the environment, things that nobody stands up for. I mean, then I think people brand that as activism. But uh, to be honest, um there's this thing um that in environmentalism we call um when tragedy of the commons that things resources that are usually uh used by everybody um usually end up being very dilapidated because because nobody then cares for them because there's no mm. accountability for how we spend uh, how we use them so we call it tragedy of the commons and so for resources that's what happens and so someone needs to stand in that uh space and bridge that gap otherwise how will we what water will we be drinking how what will we do when uh, you know all our water resources are filled up with toxins and we are all getting sick and we are seeing what's happening right now so I think that has come, it came very naturally to me. I think that's been who I am. I think I just feel like people brand it as activism and that's okay. It, it, there's, there's, a, there's a line you used when you were answering the question, which you said, I seek it when I lack it. And I was like, you need to trademark that and say this is a one voice saying because that is really cool. When you were talking, I seek courage even when I lack it. That is a very powerful statement right there. Wow. I am going to take another water break here and uh, we're going to come back on the other side and continue talking about how you became an environmentalist with what you have done so far with Survival Media Agency and uh, many more. So stick around. We'll be back for the third part. We are back again with one boy and um, she was um, answering my question on how she got interested in activism and uh, she, she said a line that I think um, I would really like to copy with her permission, which is, I seek it when I lack it. Amazing. And the, and the eat there could be anything. You know, it doesn't really necessarily need to be courage, as you were saying. So anyone listening, you know, anytime you are faced with anything, just remember that one boy said, 
I stick it when I like it and insert your eat whatever it is and continue putting one foot in front of the other. So how did Survival Media Agency come about? Because I've been on the website and I've seen the collection of women in different parts of the world. And what I noticed that uh, the, the mission for Survival Media Agency is about social justice. Am I correct? Yes, it's social and environmental justice, but social justice kind of is wide and it's in social justice, um, you'd find environmental justice. So yes, uh, it's an agency, it's a different agency. I'd say we are an agency of a kind because the only type of um, organizations we deal with and we work with are organizations that work in environmental or social justice issues. So things that we value and we believe in. And so we all kind of stemmed off from being environmentalists and activists in our own rights and meeting as people with skills, special skills in uh, communications and media creation, visual media creation, then formed an agency that's dedicated only for this type of organization. Okay, so so how, how did this come about? I mean... Is it the CEO that came up with the idea or how did you, how did you meet these people? Mm, that's a good thing. So yeah, I'm out of uni uh, first year and people ask you this big question. I mean, 21 years, people are asking you what's next. I don't know. You think I know what's next? I did not know what was next. I was barely trying to figure myself out and, you know, people, you know, people that, all we knew is you get out of uni and you try to get an internship that somehow transitions into a career or a job. And so um, my journey was slightly different because um, when I was in campus, me being the activist that I was, of course, I had started this um, at a small foundation called Sustainable Africa Youth Foundation. And I will not forget about it because it's what it was the foundation, which was the stepping stone literally to what my career is now. And what we were doing in campus was um, we were trying to have the communities around campus, sensitize uh, communities around campus, around environmentalism, and about that um, um, personal responsibility to the world that you live in, depending on, do you live here? Is that space clean? What would you like? Is your water clean? Is your space clean? Like the people around, whether it's someone who is a shopkeeper or someone who has a, has a, has a supermarket and the area around it is... Uh, um, has so much litter, then we'd sensitize the people around it and the personal responsibility that people have to keeping the environmental clean and just caring for the resources that give them that uh, environment to be able to work and and, and be uh, businessmen or women or yeah of whatever kind. So that was one mandate. And then the second one was um, I was noticing people outside when they were leaving campus had this anxiety around what am I going to do next? Because that question was constantly being asked. And so before we left campus, like a year before, um, in my last year of campus, um, 
we started uh, um, assembling all these uh, work notifications that we'd see in different places, platforms online, and then we'd send to environmentalists that were in the same, uh, that were doing the same course as I was or slightly different so that people would um, get internships or try to get internships or try to get themselves situated in one way or another. And that's where um, I met uh, the founder of uh, the organization that I work with now. She had just uh, gone to uh, um, UNFCCC, which is United Nations Framework for Climate uh, Change Convention. It, they hold something called COP every year. That's Conference of Parties. And that's parties here. I talked about transboundary when it comes to environment. So parties being all the nations of the UN, they are party to the environment within which we live. And so Conference of Parties includes all the countries coming together yearly to discuss uh, different issues regarding to the environment, whether it's uh, where we are at now with more than 400 parts per million of, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, whether it's uh, gender and climate justice, whether it's race and climate justice and how that then um, uh, comes together and which countries and how we can work with together in terms of implementation and adaptation, whether it's technology and innovation, what countries can do. So she had just come from one of those uh, conferences. Her young self had just come out of that. And she, as a media person, was trying to find other media people to work with to be able to report climate stories and uh, environmental stories and so i being a writer at that point and a blogger at that time because i was blogging a lot then i uh, answered to her call of application for uh, a writing space and so we started writing climate stories together and uh, then a year barely a year later or six months later we met for a conference of parties i think it was cop 21 in in um, no, it was not COP21, it was COP12 or COP13 in South Africa, uh, where I was writing stories. Uh, she was a photographer. And then barely a year afterwards, I started producing and uh, writing scripts and then producing short documentaries. And um, sorry, sorry, uh, sorry, I, sorry to interject. So your form yeah. of communication prior was only writing. And now, yes. now the camera came in. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, that's how that's how it happened. Uh, the, my first, uh, the the only way that I knew, uh, the only skill that I had at that point was writing, and this was a hobby that I had from way back in the day. And so I was writing as a hobby, but mostly I was writing climate stories. And so I sent some of the climate stories that I had written to her, and she really liked them, and we published them, and. Uh, uh, they were good. And so we started thinking about writing scripts. And so we wrote scripts and then started um, um, being like, you know, after writing a script, you want to be there to see the production of that documentary. And so kind of just slowly uh, moved from being the writer to the director and then from the director to the producer. And so that's that has been my journey in that space. And that was... Um, 10 years ago, that was more than 10 years ago because that was in 2011. And so that has now, we have welcomed more people and now we are at about uh, six women from different regions across the world who have uh, around uh, 60 different freelancers from across the world. I mean, from Fiji to Philippines to 
Ecuador and uh, Guatemala to Canada and Sweden and India and Pakistan. We have and very many places in Africa, here and in Ghana and in South Africa and in Egypt. So we then came up with this agency that works with freelancers, visual media freelancers everywhere to help document uh, stories, climate change stories, and what work that uh, NGOs that were doing in different places um, across the world that uh, generally is not documented and is not seen, but kept at that point, they were just, um, there were many uh, uh, reports that were being done and that's how people were reporting what they were doing in communities. And then after visual media, we realized that it was much better to, to tell, to let the communities tell their own stories of how projects had impacted them. And uh, that is how we came to be. And that's how our work found its home and its purpose. So I have two questions I'm going to ask back to back. Is the is the is the agency created specifically that is only has women? Because when you go on the website, I only see women there. That's one. And my second question: What's the difference between a director and a producer? Hmm. So um, I'll start with the first question: that we kind of did not envision it just being women. It just came to be for some reason. Every other person we met at these conferences who was a visual media artist and wanted to work with the agency was another woman from another different part of the world. So we met with someone from India who was a very good producer and a very good uh, filmmaker, ended up being one of the producers that we have on that space. Uh, met another person from Argentina and um and Iran and ended up being one of the best producers and filmmakers that we've had. And so it just kind of happened. We did not go out seeking only and our freelancer, our freelancer, um, uh, network is way more diverse. Like it has any type of a person and how they want to show up. And, but we just kind of found that we merged. We were six women that merged very well. And then we started out that company and that agency and that has, been since okay so the other question was what's the what you said you transitioned from writing to media visual media and then from director to producer i wanted to ask the question and I'm, I'm, I'm also sure that someone in the audience also has the same question what's the difference between a director and a producer in your space mm. so I'm not sure whether it's just in my space, but in most spaces in visual media making, a director usually it's it's on set when that's happening, when the actual shooting of whether it's photography, whether it's videography, the person that sets up, they direct everything in the shoot. Um, what happens now? They have the schedule for the shoot, then they they are able to come up with, uh, they, they are the ones that direct what's going to happen during, how everything is going to progress during the shoot. Say, for example, uh, this is when we take the interviews, this is where this person sits, this is how this is, uh, the interview questions are going to be asked, this is who is going to ask. This. They direct the whole day. They kind of help direct the shoot when on set whereas the producer 
is someone who in the over who carries the overall vision of a film for example so they know who the audience of the film is going to be they know the purpose for creating this film they know what the outcomes uh, are supposed to be for this film they know why they want this film to exist and so they oversee the script writing whether it's going to be scripted or not whether it's going to be um uh people are going to go in with interview questions they understand what they are going to be to be able to achieve the the vision of that uh uh film and it's existing so the producer carries the entire narrative of of production so is steven spielberg george lucas are they producers or directors they are producers but then oh, okay. i would not i would not tell them how to describe themselves again maybe in some places they are directors uh okay so for you that you have been a writer you've been a producer and you've been a director which of these three spaces or silos do you do you enjoy the most um i think producing is what i enjoy the most i feel like uh i enjoy seeing a vision transform into outcomes i enjoy organizations coming back to us and telling us what they've been able to achieve through a film they made in a certain communities and how it impacted that community i feel like that's where i've gained most impact and so because i really enjoy impact then i think that's where i feel that i'm most useful are, are you still writing not so much nowadays i have not written so much nowadays i think i tend to my days uh, seem to be occupied with producing most of the time and the foundation there's just a lot happening and so yeah i've not had uh, so much time to write yeah so how how did you guys choose the name survival media agency because every time i engage that name i won't lie i'm just going to be honest with you it has a strong connotation to me So I'm always trying to ask myself and the strong connotation by the way is in a positive way and especially because it's in an arena of social justice and environmental justice and I don't have the title of being an environmentalist but trust me I am very big about environmental issues because someone dropping that Sprite bottle on Lenana Road pisses the hell out of me because he drops it there and it continues and he's going to have a child and the child is going to see man it's just a cycle so how did you guys come up with that name survival media agency um because that's what we're trying to do man it's it's we are at what look at the world right now you i i mean come on we are at 40 degrees and 50 de- 40 running towards 50 degrees at certain parts of the world mm-hmm. and in other parts of the world it's freezing we've gone from a point where we were just talking about climate change as something that would be happening in the future to a place where i can for sure talk about farmers in kenya who depend on rainfed agriculture who make up around 60% of this population now not able 
to know when to plant because rains don't work the same way they worked before. The rain season, the longer rain season stopped being the longer rainy season and now it's just three weeks of rain and there's no more rain. They can't plant during that time. When it was supposed to be, August is cold right now. It's really cold in Nairobi right now and the entire country. This is when people are harvesting and we do not have mechanized drying facilities. And so when people were supposed to harvest maize and beans and be able to dry them and uh, put them out for sale, they no longer do that. First of all, there's barely any food to be um, harvested and what's their rots because there's no sun to be able uh, to dry the, 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 the crops that they, they harvest. So we are getting to that point where this is what's happening in my country and this is replicated in so many other countries. And we realize that the stories that we were trying to tell for communities and from communities and with communities were about their survival. And so it was easy then to take that name, Survival Media Agency. Survival, okay, okay. So basically, if you don't do these things, we are not going to survive as a, as a people, as a species, basically. I don't know. Maybe people will figure out. But <laughs> right now, we are we are fighting for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so if, if, the pre if the president of Kenya were to come to you and say, hey, one boy, we want you to be the environmental Zion in, in my administration. And we give you the latitude to choose one issue in Kenya from an environmental standpoint that you want to make an impact and change in, what would that be? Hmm. That's a very heavy question, UI, because it's not one thing, man. It's not one thing. And as, as we talked about uh, the cycles of the environment, everything interacts with the other thing. I mean, it's the plastic bottle today and the liter that in 10 years becomes microplastics in the ocean, in 10 years becomes cancer in our bodies, in another 40 years becomes something else. So we know it becomes soil health because the bodies then decompose and become soil that the plants uptake. So it's very interesting to see the cycles that affect us that we are not able to see now. And so... I'm not sure that I'd have one thing. Again, I say, give me a range. Give me three or okay. four. I'll say three. What? Three. Okay, you're perfect. The, you're, you're, you're the environmental czar of an administration and you are studying and having your first press conference to the people of Kenya. What are your three initiatives that you say, by the end of my time here, we have tried to make a dent as much as possible. That That is local to our... Of course, environment. environment is connected with the global world but that is local to us as a people in kenya so um i think first of all i would be speaking to my team i don't see myself speaking to the people i see myself speaking to my team the people that i work with i'm here in the office and it's first day of work what are we going to do what's that vision looking like and so the first thing that i see Tackling is agriculture. And this is because we are a country that depends so much on agriculture. And I know that we can produce so much in agriculture. But what's coming out of agriculture is largely polluted and largely unsafe for people's consumption. So what's happening is that the health of the people in the long run gets affected and the health of soils and waters get affected. So agriculture would be my big space. That's where I'd focus most. That's my first. The second one would be rivers. 
And this is sadly because when I was growing up, rivers were clear, right? Rivers were clear. That's how I grew up. I saw rivers, they were clear. There was fish in the water. There was little, I remember there was this little insect that used to, you know, um, just swim around and float around on rivers that we really enjoyed playing with when we were kids. And I come to the city later on in life and people here have never seen a clear river. And largely rivers in, uh, in Kenya are brown or dark because of pollution. And that is something that I'd really want to reclaim because we are either losing our water bodies and I, I mean our clean rivers and our clean river bodies that we used to depend on for water for ourselves and for consumption and for agriculture because of pollution and eutrophication, which is uh, when... Um, we pollute our soils with so much uh, pesticides and fertilizers that when that then is washed away into our rivers by rainwater, it becomes brown and gray. And mostly it's uh, not just what it looks like, but what it consists of. It consists of these fertilizers and pesticides. So that when you take it for testing, it's not fit for human consumption. There's no more fish uh, and, 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 and animals living in this river. So that would be my next part because... I'd want for my children and my children's children to look at a river and know that it can be healthy because right now there's almost they are almost non-existent in this country. I've seen people that leave this country and travel far and call to say, "Oh, I saw a a clean river at last. I've been able to see a river that's not brown." And that's not how I'd want us to exist. I mean, we have resources to clean up. It's 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 just a very it's an easy systematic way of changing it, and I think it is doable. Five to ten years, we'd be back where we started. So rivers would be my second thing, and then the third thing that I'd want to concentrate on would be um, what we allow in our country and in our system as pesticides. And as fertilizers and the process of making that, what is safe and what is unsafe. Because a lot of times we uh, we find that a lot of the things that we are consuming today are unsafe. But even when we go into agriculture and we, grow, we go into rivers and we have not tackled the policies around what we accept as um, good for our systems here in Kenya, and I think largely in very many places, but I'm speaking in my context. So... In my context, what I'd want to tackle is what we allow in terms of pesticides, in terms of fertilizers, in terms of what gets into our bodies eventually as food. So I think those three would be the main things that I'd tackle if I was um, in a position of influence. Last question before I segue to your foundation. Um, the issue going on in Kisumu with the, I think, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. When I was in Kenya, and I used to watch nine o'clock news. By the way, tip to the audience, if you go to a, a new country and you want to settle down there for a while, watch, watch the nine o'clock news in the night. <laughs> That's the best way to learn about the country, in my opinion. I don't know if you would agree with me as, a, as someone that has traveled wider and deeper than I have. Is that a, is that a, is that a nice tip? Yeah, definitely. Watch the local news. Second tip, go to the local market. <laughs> this Indeed. yeah so the, the question i wanted to ask was when i used to watch the nine o'clock news on ntv they used to talk about the water in kisumu with the, the high is it high insight or something like that the plants 
can water that be, hyacinth? Yes, thank you, water hyacinth. Can that situation be reversed or is it almost doomed? Basically, it, it, is, is, it, is, it caused, is it caused by the actions of the local population or is it an environmental climate change issue? It's both. It is both. And knowing that water hyacinth is an exotic plant, so it's not endemic to Lake Victoria. And uh, what he's talking about is Kisumu is a city close to Lake Victoria. And uh, in Lake Victoria is where they have these uh, Lake Hyacinth that sometimes just uh, grows in, um, it's it just chokes up the entire lake in a way that you can't even access the lake for kilometers. And so this is a plant that was introduced to the lake. It was not there before. And mm. because it's an exotic plant, yes, because it's an exotic plant, it had to have come from somewhere else to the lake. So in terms of managing it and how it becomes like that, again, we talked about eutrophication, where you have people use a lot of fertilizers to help enrich uh, plants, which generally you remember what happens is uh, you grow a plant, it's not becoming very green, so it needs some potassium, it needs some calcium. So people bring in fertilizers to help it not turn yellowish and to make it a little bit more healthy. But what happens is, as 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 um, because capitalism is what um, drives this industries, this uh, agricultural seed industries, because back when we were younger and traditionally seed, we used to harvest crops and would keep some for seeds for the next um, season, planting season, and then we'd uh, consume the rest or sell the rest. But that's not what happens now. What happens is we have to buy new seeds for every planting season. So these seeds require more and they are made to require more in terms of fertilizer. And so farmers have to pump all these fertilizers and chemicals into their soils. And we are coming to a point where soils are so chalked up because they have so much fertilizers. When you're growing beans, they require different fertilizers. When you're growing um, uh, maize in that space, they require different fertilizers. When you require a different crop like rice, they require different fertilizers. So soils are so chalked up by these uh, chemicals. And what happens is when rainwater comes, it washes, it percolates down and di dilutes these fertilizers and takes it and carries it into the rivers, chokes up the rivers and the rivers end up in lakes and oceans. Mm. But for Lake Victoria, it's a lot of rivers drain into it and all these rivers come from farms. And what you see is that there are rivers that are laden with chemicals and fertilizers. What happens when you have one hyacinth, a crop that is able to really just grow uh, and, and, and choke up the whole place, it, it grows exponentially and it's, people are unable to control it. So that's majorly the issue with that lake. It is controllable, but you see it has to come from a policy level. How do we grow our crops? How do we take care of our rivers? How close can you plant because we see people farmers now can farm up to the riverbed before there used to no there is still a law but people do not observe this law anymore where you you're supposed to live 10 15 meters and you're supposed to keep these 10 15 meters with grass and 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 of different kinds to be able to absorb 
any other nutrients that would be trying to percolate into the rivers. That doesn't happen anymore. So rivers are not clean. So this is one of the issues that people are facing out there in that lake, but um, happens, I'm sure, in different parts of the world. So if that answers, I hope that answers your question. It really does. And I think I'm going to make a plea here. Whoever is listening to this ever in the near future and you are someone in government or in influence, I am personally nominating Wamboy for an environmental position of influence because she speaks passionately about this and she seems to know what she's really talking about. So, And I want to move to Kenya. So I really want to enjoy my food and for my children and my grandchildren as well. So Wamboy, please join a party and... Uh, basically lead the environmental uh, sector. So let's uh, transition to 197, the foundation. I mean, I have seen you travel to schools and how passionate you've been about it. Where did this come from? Um, you know, I, I come, my background, I come from a, from a rural village. I, I, I did not grow up in the city, right? I did not grow up, and it's not to say that the village is very far or different or bad, and I really enjoyed my time grow growing up in the rivers. You know, we swam in the rivers. We enjoyed clear waters. We, we, I really had fun growing up in the village. But what I realized is uh, when I came into the city, the exposure that I had and what travel, what um, when I was traveling, when I was young, what travel did for me and then with schooling, with my university days and doing environmental science. And thank you to my, you know, university and course curriculum that involved travel to all these agroecological zones to understand better what, how those patterns exist and how they interact with each other. What I realized is that exposure and travel does to someone what nothing else can be able to do. I mean, it's the one thing that just changes you you learn and unlearn at the same time you be you become kind and then you 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 also hold on to yourself it's just something that is very liberating about travel that i don't think there's anything else that i've experienced in life that does that to me as a person that has grown me as a person as much as travel has and so I realized that a lot of students and a lot of people that come from the places that I had come from did not have the same chances as I had. So I'd say I had a little bit of privilege in the terms in, in, in terms of what my parents were able to offer me in terms of the schools that I went to and then what offered me in terms of then how that awareness, because I remember when I was back in the day and my dad, my dad traveled to Namibia one time and he brought a map to me. It was this table that was shaped as a map. And I remember him showing me how he'd travel across all these countries to end up in Namibia. And that was just mind blowing. I was like, okay, so all these countries exist. So what happens here? And then he told me there was time difference. That was crazy to me, time difference. So people are in one time zone and then this other one and you know studying geography and learning how longitudes affect that and knowing how latitudes affect seasons and temperate climates and different climatic zones i mean it was mind-blowing to me and that is another type of travel that books give you that if you can't physically travel then that will do to you so what why i came up with 197 education and incubator foundation was i realized that because i'm not able to take everybody with me when i travel for students that cannot afford school then i can 
stand in that gap and provide scholarships and then books will travel with them. They will take them where I cannot take them. And another program that we offer other than scholarships is uh, <clears throat> virtual learning. And uh, you have been to Kenya, so you know rural Kenya is a little bit different from uh, Nairobi in terms of access to Wi-Fi and access to virtual uh, media. And, and, and so we take virtual learning to them so that they can interact with more than just what they know in their village. You know, the teachers they're used to and, and, and the situations they're used to. So they are taught by teachers in different places who use visual media, pictures and videos to help them learn and to pull them from abstract definition of ideas to actual real time. And that's all because I cannot physically take each student with me and make them earn that passion. But if I cannot do that, then there are other ways that I can slowly plant that seed that makes them want to be more than what they are, than explore themselves and enjoy themselves uh, and enjoy learning uh, in the spaces that they are. So that's the other program. And thereafter, even after school, uh, we try to help students establish themselves in jobs and in businesses or careers, whichever they choose, by giving them internship programs or connecting them to internship programs, also by mentorship programs and partnering with people who are in the same careers and jobs as they are in, and then coaching programs, one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching programs uh, to help them understand, create a vision for themselves and try to get into that and um, lastly, through funding, if that is required for small businesses, whether it's setting up um, a salon or setting up a, a getting a laptop for them to to start their um, their data science course or something like that. So um, that's how uh, one ninety seven um, started, and that's how it operates. Wow! So we are going to take our final water break and come and have our final conversation with uh, Wamboy on the other side to continue to talk about 197. And then my favorite uh, section of my the conversation is uh, the one that's going to come next. So stay with us, and uh, we hope you will be with us on the other side. So I'm back with uh, Wamboy, and this is going to be the uh, final section of our conversation and I want to thank Wambui a lot uh, for being very generous with your time on a Sunday. Uh, if you've not been to Nairobi before, Nairobi has got a very big brunch culture on Sundays. I don't know how it is like right now with the election, but I'm sure Kenyans will still find a way to have fun as always. So um, you were talking about 197 and how uh, 197 was created and the tenets for 197. How, how long have you been running 197 now for? Um, I've been running 197 since 2020. It got registered last year, 2021, January. So, yes. So, that makes, I think, slightly more than one year and a half as a registered organization and two years uh, with me working on it. And with when, when did you originally have the idea? Uh, the the idea came to me in early 2020, just before um, the lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns started. At that point, I really was planning my next phase of travel, and I wanted a bigger why than just my curiosity. I wanted it to impact people differently. You know, on social media, you share your travels, and I've for sure seen way more people traveling. Um, 
maybe because of the pages that I'm exposed to now or I do not know. But I think there's a, a part there in that I have played in opening up the world and in sharing my journey and people sharing also their journeys and what they are doing outside there. So I'm seeing way more people traveling. I love that aspect of it because as we all agreed on travel, travel is amazing. So yeah, um, I was starting to reveal my why and wanted to impact people more directly than that. And so that's why I, and I was, that's how I came up with the foundation. Mm. See, and and it's now one year and a few months, I would say. How has it been like running it? I mean, it's very different when you have an idea and now it's operating. <laughs> oh my goodness, tell me about it. <laughs> every time, every time I meet somebody who has taken an idea from down in the ground, you know, from your brain to um, something physical, something tangible. <sighs> Man, it's just, you want to, Pat that someone, and not just pat that someone on the back, but just share encouraging words, see them, like really see them, because that's a big thing to do. And um, not just big in terms of, you know, I don't want to make it so grandiose, but in terms of um, there are many times that you will be discouraged, whether it's business, whether it's a foundation. And in terms of, for me, the foundation just had to put me out there and be somebody who's comfortable asking for grants. And that's something that's very different from who I am as a person who believes in funding themselves and being this independent per person who's trying to live their lives. And then all of a sudden I had to be somebody who um, is trying to provide this service and therefore being uh, completely um, reliant on grants, whether it's from other organizations, whether it's from corporates where I strong people whatever so that was a major shift for me and it was a learning point for me and I had to again unlearn some of these uh, money habits and money ideas that I had learned uh, from my past. Mm. So in terms of uh, grants and donations is, is are you only looking at uh, grants and donations within Kenya or are you also looking for grants and donations from any any part of the world? Is, is first of all, is, um, is, uh, is, is Kenya open to allowing outside money to fund foundations that are local and operated in Kenya? Yes, yes. Um, as with most countries, yes, we because we have a lot of uh, INGOs, international NGOs that operate here and depend on funding from outside. Same that happens here. Even the organizations and NGOs that have been founded here in the country they are able to receive funding from outside, wherever the funding comes from, as long as it's clean funding. <laughs> I like that, clean funding. <laughs> so five years from now, what would success look like for you with the foundation? Hmm, five years from now, it would be, if I'm hoping to travel to 197 countries, then I'd hope to have 197 students that if not for our bridging the gap, then they would not have gone to school. And so providing scholarships to those type of students. And then um, we are currently launching virtual learning centers in different schools. So I want to grow that as big as I possibly can because we see so many positive changes uh, through virtual learning 
And so currently we are in three schools, each of them uh, accommodating around 43 students. So that makes around 127 students. But then there are also other people that come in from different classes uh, to participate in these uh, virtual learning spaces. And so we are hoping to continue growing that as much as possible. And uh, in five years, I think what that would look like for me is to be able to have gone into every, almost maybe half of the counties in this country. We have around 47 counties and I can imagine if we would be able to go like to 23 counties. And we are currently at only three counties. So if we are able to go like to 25 or 30 counties, that would be amazing. And especially the rural ones, the ones that have no access uh, to Wi-Fi and such kind of things that we can be able to give them a, a chance to view the, the the globe or the other people that work and other people that go to schools in different ways so that they can be able to kind of have a sneak peek of what's happening around in the world. So yeah, that would be that would be the mission for um 197. I think and then the biggest mission would be to marry environmentalism and 197 because those two have become my passion. So if I can be able to marry environmentalism and because travel is already integrated into 197, if I can be able to marry that education and environmentalism and figure out a way for all the students to um, have impact in their own communities in terms of environmentalism, that would be that would be a very sweet spot for me. So if someone is listening to this and as an individual or is influential with an organization and wanted to support 197, how did they go about that and basically what kind of support would you basically say right now that you would welcome? Mm, definitely something that we have been looking for and is always welcome is sustainable funding. And what I mean by sustainable funding is funding that does not look like one-year funding because one-year funding helps us to start a program, but how do we continue the program after you leave? So helping us get sustainable funding in a way that we are able to continue for two, four, five years, because it's very hard to start off a student in the first year of high school and then tell them you do not have funding to take them through their second year of high school. So the same way we will not leave a student behind is the same type of partners that we are looking for, partners that are also very um, aligned value-wise in terms of what we stand for. And... In this aspect, I think in the five-year goal, as you've asked, I think I want, even with travel and why I travel and why I'm happy with the curiosity of, you know, me presenting my Kenyan passport in different places where they probably not interacted with someone like me before, is that shifting of the narrative of that perception of, you know, of the African person, what has been fed to people as, you know, always a medium, always a liability and looking at us the people with the majority of youth in the 21st century as potential capital that we can use to people capital to use to take our um, global uh, developmental agenda forward in the next 20 years. But if we, if we look at it and just think of it as a liability, then we are losing a most critical resource to the world's development. So I, 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 I'd love to, to partner with people who look at Africa and Africa youth the same as a critical resource that would be, uh, I mean, I look at um, 
uh, IT, the IT industry, the, 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 the tech industry today. And I see a lot of uh, American and Western countries hiring in Africa nowadays and allowing for people to work from home and uh, work um, from wherever in the world that they want to. So look at that. But, but it comes from uplifting the African youth and seeing them as an asset that will be able to help your industry, help your organization. So these are the people that we are looking to partner with. Someone who sees that and then is able to partner in the long run. So there's that type of funding that we are looking for. And then the second part is we are always looking for volunteer teachers, different teachers, because we are all with virtual learning. What we do is uh, we hire teachers from different or we uh, get volunteer teachers from different parts of the world that are either want to teach sciences, geography, history um, and different lessons to different uh, different syllabuses and different lessons and topics to the students. So if you're a teacher and you're passionate about uh, teaching students and, 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 and being in one of our virtual classes, please reach out. Um, I don't know how this my web our website is uh, 197 fund.org and you can also reach me at Wamboy that's w a m b u i at 197fund.org so that's how you can reach us also on, on social media Wamboy Kichobi everywhere so uh, just reach out to me and I'll be happy to connect with you and, and 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 have another volunteer teacher. I always am very excited meeting different teachers from all over the world because students, you know, if you're used to hearing math from the same teacher on and on and on again, and then this other come this other person comes with a different way of teaching and helps you understand that concept either faster or maybe harder, depending on how they introduce the topic. It's just very different for learning. Same as chemistry, same as biology, same as history. And especially if you're keen on using visual media, that is videos and photos and different ways to help them learn. So those are ways in which you can uh, get in touch and support us. You know, I was about to ask the question, which I was about to segue to my final section, but uh, typical me, inquisitive UI. Um, that volunteer teacher sitting down in Sweden wants wants to support 197 foundation with with visual media is it that is it going to is it going to be like a kind academy where they can record something and then you can scale it out into the different schools that 197 is already partnering with or how do you envision that Usually it can either be that uh, system where someone pre-records themselves, but usually we do live conversations with students where the teachers are able to interact live with the students themselves. And um, what that, how that impacts people is that there's that live interaction. I'm speaking with you, UI, I'm in Nairobi and you're in Canada. You know, beforehand, we are able to speak about the weather out there. If you want me to go outside and take you with my laptop so that you're able to see what um, the weather looks like out here, it's, it's very possible for me to do that and it's very possible for you too. So what happens is during those type of interactions, they are also able to meet that person and feel the essence of that person and uh, meet that kind of like a, a type of e-traveling by, you know, someone who's probably never been able to uh, speak to a Swedish before. They don't know what the Swedish language uh, looks like. They do not know what currency they use in Sweden. They can they can interact in a way with the teacher. So what we 
we try to do is most of the time encourage the live lessons with the students and this is where we see the most benefit because it also rouses some curiosity they also understand that it does not start and end at their village they are curious now about what sweden looks like what sweden feels like they want to travel to these places sometimes you get teachers who also know about scholarship opportunities that lie for different students so yeah so that's what um we encourage and that's that's the basic method that we use it's a it's a it's a simple as a zoom conversation to be honest mm, mm. you know I, i'm 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 listening to you and things are popping in my head in terms of you know how kids are very curious and let's say that teacher is sitting down in sweden and having a conversation with the classroom and it's not a structured conversation it's almost like hey one boy I'm, I'm going to give two hours of my time and kids are just so curious ask questions say hmm, what is what is the currency of sweden and then the teacher can put the, her hand or his hand in his pocket and bring out the currency and hold it to the camera and show it to them and then another person could say oh i read somewhere that sweden has snow can i see how a snow looks like and he can take his his computer open the door and if it's winter in sweden he can actually so, show the snow and what that does just like it did for you with your parents is it now enables them to realize that you know what as you rightly said it doesn't end at stop in this village <laughs> the world is bigger than this and i want to go experience snow for myself because you see like me i left i left uh, nigeria when i was in my late teens i've seen these things and now i want to come back home to now give back because i've already seen it so i i really i really really like that because if you take it and just scale it that way that creativity aspect of it with the kids just being kids and the kind of questions that kids ask probably would not really come out yeah then it's just another video they could have watched on youtube or somewhere else or it's a live conversation the possibilities really are endless and you know you think you think a certain way but there's a question that one student will ask and you're like what i i could have never thought of that I would have never asked that question so giving them that opportunity of being out there and I remember one time having this class with um a teacher who was in Texas at that time and and they were like oh Texas Rangers that's all they know so they're like all right do you have you know and it's really curiosity and I love that openness of being able to be who you are and just ask what you want and then you know he tells them no we are not all rangers we actually i am a phd professor that does this and that this is my university took them around and it was just a beautiful class took them outside to see the buildings and the architecture and they were really stunned another time we had this chef speaking uh, to us from bermuda who interestingly had been in kenya at some point and so all these conversations really blend in and people who imagined that someone who's going to school to study um culinary art or things to do with cooking they're just very boring and you know what is cooking going to do to you and then they were like this person has worked in cruise ships in the world and he has traveled because of his culinary skills and the students were mind blown so to be honest it is something that has i feel like has the biggest impact one of the programs with the biggest impact in our a uh, foundation so if someone feels that they would want to give us an hour that would mean the most to us and and the way i look at it is like the private schools in kenya or 
the, most of the private schools in in Africa uh, that parents can afford to pay the kind of fees they afford. These kids take it for granted that summertime they have exchange programs and go to different parts of the world. Whereby with 197, I look at this like an exchange program. <laughs> Actually, mean, and, and it's right there. It's right there. It's right yeah. there. Wow. So let's transition to one of my favorite uh, sections of my of the show, which is failures. And I, you have done so many things with your life. You have traveled to 49 countries. You have uh, been at the genesis of Survival Media Agency. You have also created and operating 197 now. What is one failure that almost destabilized you and how did you rebound from it? One. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Again, I'm not, I'm not, give me I'm a range. I'm not, I'm not going to say three. Come on. If we say three, we are going to talk here for hours. So you, I know, you, I know. You, you, you choose but, the best one. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but yeah. As much, I think one of the things that I have learned and, and I have had to unlearn was that, you know, being open to sharing uh, out my failures and not just sharing, I think just accepting failure as it is because accepting makes it easier to share them out, right? So uh, one of the things that I feel... Um, one of the times that I think really destabilized me was um, I got a scholarship for my master's when I was 21, 22 years old. I think I got it when I was 21. And I moved to France to study um, my master's in environment, uh, territory, spaces, and societies when I was 22 years old. And uh, basically, me being passionate about travel, I was very excited to be moving to a new country. First of all, I was going to be living in Paris. Come on. I've watched movies. I know it's the city of love. It's beautiful. I was going to have a blast. That's where I was going to be living. I was not prepared for winter. I was not prepared. Mentally, I thought I was. I was not prepared for different cultural differences. I was not uh, prepared for language barrier. I was not prepared for a lot of the things. And um, I had gotten this scholarship because I was one of the brightest students in my class. And I ended up not finishing that master's. So I never finished my master's. And that was one of the things that I thought at that time was one of the biggest failures for myself. In retrospect, it was one of the biggest decision I've ever made just for myself. But if I was to go back, I'd still not finish that course because it would have been of no use to me and my career in communications in environmental work. And because I had learned all, all I had to learn and I was at the last stage, literally the last stage of, of my master's, uh, meaning I was supposed to uh, take my, I, was, I had done my project and it was a project phase. So I was only supposed to submit my project to my supervisor and then that was it. But at that place, uh, being in France and being having been one of the most uh, conversational social people that I knew, I know a lot of people um, think that I'm a very social person, and being by myself all of a sudden for very many months, and then being that cold for the first time that I really think I was fighting for survival. Every day I left to go to class, I really think I was fighting for survival. I've never been so cold in my life. 
I don't know how you guys do it in Canada. I could never. And I think this is one of the things that I want to tell every embassy when I go to, to I'm like, I am coming back. Like I need sun in my life. I'm not, stop thinking that I could ever move to your country to live there. I can visit. I just don't have the mind strength that can cope with winters like that. So that was one of the biggest challenges for me. But then secondly, not being able to communicate, even the simple nuances that you know are very important to communicate with people when you're happy, when you're, when you have joy, something that, you know, in my country here in Kenya, it's sunny 24 seven. I'm saying it's cold right now, but it's 16 degrees and that's cold for us, but that's, um, and I'm talking in centigrade, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but uh, that's maybe probably around 60 something. So I don't know how people live at 30 or 20 Fahrenheit. I cannot do that. So um, the small nuances that I did not know about just everybody being in dark clothes and not seeing that much sunshine and just not, it was very dull and depressing for me. And at that time, then I was not able to go to class as, I had planned to and so I think three months in I just stopped going to class and I was depressed I was for sure okay I'm not gonna say I was depressed but I was feeling depressed and I was feeling homesick and I just wanted to be in a different environment than I was in I did not have that many friends so it was not it was just very different for me and by the time it was time to come back home I knew I did not want to finish that master's course and my professors called me he offered me a PhD. He wanted me to continue and finish, and I could not finish it. And I remember for the first one, for the first time in my life, education had been such uh, a defining thing in my life that not being able to finish masters really took a toll on me, on my mental health. And to me, that was failure. And so it took all the effort of unlearning what uh, failure was because I was still doing well with a survival media agency. I was to, we were still trying to craft out a vision for ourselves and we were still trying to work with organization and that was going well. But then I could not go past the fact that I was not finishing my master's. I thought I had failed. I had failed my professor. I had failed myself. I had failed my parents. I had failed everybody. That, you know, during my graduation party was very happy to talk about how I was going to graduate because I had already started... When I was finishing my, 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 my undergraduate degree, I had already started my master's. That's how focused I was. I was like, I'm going to finish this, get into my master's. I was 21. And then by 23, I'll have finished with my master's. And they had already offered me a PhD by the time I was refusing to take this. I was seeing this journey. It was very clear to my mind that I was going to be a doctor, a PhD um graduate by the time I was 26 or 27 and when my I could not master the mental strength to carry me through that it really took a toll on me and um I almost did not have the energy to take myself to survival media agency fully because I thought that that was a plan b and plan a was this and I was not able to listen to my body and my and my mind and my passion and my soul that was telling me this is this is what you're good at. I I was writing as a hobby, but I really enjoyed it and people who read it really loved it. And then that took me into media and communications and and into environment in a way that was very different from what I had imagined and what my professors had imagined and what my parents had imagined 
what everyone around me had imagined. In fact, a lot of people that I know in the environmental world are doctors and they are P they have their PhDs and they they walk that journey. So it just felt like I was trying to be very different. And so um that comparison, you think it seems foolhardy that somebody would start comparing themselves, but um it really just happens because we are you know, we expose ourselves daily to these people. They are our friends. They have, they grow in certain areas. And then you, you feel like you're not growing in that same pace and in that way. And um, in my learning, in my, all my life, I'd always be the youngest person in class. The youngest in my primary school, the youngest person. I finished high school at 16. I was ready to go to uni at that time. And, 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 it just felt like I'd finish master's at a very young age and PhD at a very young age. And then all of a sudden that came crashing and I had to rebuild a new dream. And um, that was the big, the failure that in my adult life shifted and shook my core a little bit and had me have to face myself because the jobs that would have come very easily for me as a grad as a master's graduate and as a PhD graduate then were not there anymore, were not an option for me anymore. And now I had to craft a path in this agency that we are building and it had to work. And that was it was one of the ways I learned how to face fear. And I'd even say travel. In a way, it allowed me to travel differently, but it also allowed me to face the fear of the unknown and just venture into something that I had not known that adventure in, but eventually became the core of my being and the core of my career. I could never see you as someone with a PhD. You are too, <laughs> you are too, you are too adventurous and creative to be too, to be holding a conservative title. This is just, this is something just my, just my opinion. <laughs> this is something that people around me could see that I could not see. But also because I was very smart in my class and the push to be that person because they were, you know, you're smart. Here's a scholarship, go and do your masters. And then before I'm even done with masters, they're like, finish. We are ready with your PhD scholarship. It's here. We are and there's that pressure. But that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I can relate to your story. I'm similar to you. I mean, in all humility, I know I'm a very, very smart person. And I, if my father listens to this, you definitely agree with me. But I'm not a conservative person at all. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bird. I need to fly. And in my flying, you see, I always reference the bird because... The bird wakes up in the morning, doesn't know where its food is coming from. And the alliance and the hyenas make a kill and they leave and the birds come and just have their meal. Humans here in Canada put bird food on their tree. You, you literally went to the grocery store with your hard-earned money in an inflation and still bought a bag of bird food. This bird doesn't know you, doesn't, is not loyal to you. It doesn't go and walks with you. And then you took your own money and bought bed food and put a bed feeder on your tree and always refill it every morning. Come on. <laughs> so if if you really look at life that same way, you'll be on your dying bed and realize, you know, I really lived life on my own terms and I created 
I created the kind of life that I wanted. So I totally can relate with you. So thanks for sharing. Um, there's a question I always, it's something I always do with guests. I started doing it with the pre previous guest and which is, I say, which question would you want me to ask the next guest? So I'm going to ask the, the last guest, her name was Julie. And she said, why this is my question for the next guest. So this is the question, and this is my final question before we wrap up here. Um, her question from Julie is, if you know you were not going to die, what would you do? What risk would you take? Hmm. So if I was not going to die taking that risk, or if I was not going to die, like I was going to live forever. No. What do you if, mean? if... If you, if you knew you were not going to die, what risk would you take? So let me give an example for me. No, no, that's, that's me basically putting my answer in your head. No. Or do you want me to... No, I'm asking for context. I'm asking for context for that question in terms of, is it like, are you asking if I was never going to die, like if I was going to live forever? Or while taking the risk, say for example, if I say I'm going to jump out of a plane, I'm not going to die. Is that what you mean? Is that the sec? Is it the second option or the first option? Let me not be Julie here. Or any. I would say any. Let's just say any because I'm not. Julie is the one that asked the question for the next guest. So let me just say any. Hmm. Basically, knowing that we have a lifespan of eighty between eighty to hundred years. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so we are. So it's not the first one. It's not the forever. <laughs> Yeah, so if not, it's, it's not, not the forever, forever one, yeah. if it's yeah. not the forever one, and I still have eighty years to live, and but in that aspect, we are asking, if, you know, what risk I would take if I knew I wasn't going to die. I would even extend it to not die and harm me, harm me physically, you okay. know, harm me physically. I would really take more risks in terms of travel, like I would. I would go out in the night. I would take cubs to places I would never take them before, uh, if that was not a, a, an option. Say, for example, there are places that I've gone to and by 7 p.m. I wanted to be back at the hotel because I did not know what that was going to look like. I would take so many more risks in terms of travel. I would, I, would, I would do everything. I mean, I would do everything within reasonable... <laughs> I mean... I'm pretty adventurous. You are. I have jumped out of planes. I've, I've done a couple of things. So, and when they t give me that indemnity thing to sign, I sign it with my eyes closed. I'm like, I am doing it whether I come out alive or not. The point is, I'm, I want to feel the feeling. So the thing is, the only risks I'm, I'm, I'm very afraid of physical harm, in terms of I, I don't want to be. Of course, rape comes to my mind a lot in terms of me traveling and what would happen in that sense. Uh, being beaten, I don't want to be in a situation where people harm me physically or I'm shot or anything. So if no physical harm would come to me and my body, then I would put myself out there when I travel way, way more, way more than I do right now because I know I give it maybe 50% or 60%. And... What question would you want me to ask the next guest? Hmm. 
Um, I think I'd not. I think I'd want when I listen the next time. I'd want to know when is or when and what the context around that time did the next speaker feel the most they lost all hope or something happened or they lost all hope and they they felt the most miserable in their life and how were they able to come out of that the next guest is alan so i will ask that question to alan on tuesday um so in um in wrapping up here what's your final thoughts to the audience and how would the audience be able to find you and continue to try to see what interesting things you're doing with your life hmm. i know you talked about the website you talked about the website for 197 so what other what other ways can they basically follow you mm-hmm. or even communicate with oh. you yeah so you can reach me on social media sites and i think that means instagram mostly and facebook and Twitter at uh, Wamboi Kichobi, which is at W-A-M-B-U-I-G-I-C-H-O-B-I um, on all social media sites or just type Adventure197 and um, on Google and you will be able to find Wamboi somewhere. Um, happy to interact with different people at all times so if there's any question lingering or you'd want to learn something different that i've not uh, talked about just feel free i'm happy to communicate um last words parting words would be enjoy life it's very short man it's really short and we're here it will be 2100 at some point or 2200 and we will be nowhere even in the soil, we'll have completely been depleted. So enjoy it. Enjoy it. It's it's very short. Live life on your own terms and learn as much as you can learn at the same time because we also have ingrained um, thoughts of how we are supposed to exist, you know, or show up um, or appropriate in, in appropriate ways in which we are supposed to show up. Don't hold yourself too much to that. Just be true to yourself and live because we are alive. Wow. Well, boy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I think you're one of the most interesting people that I got to meet in Kenya. And when you accepted to come on the show, I was very excited because for me, I'm all about someone listening to this conversation and saying, if she can do it, I can. And you have really traveled on a passport that is not as open as many other countries, but you have not allowed that to stop you. And again, just with your story about uh, being in France and not finishing your master's, uh, being coming from Africa, we know how that is, you know how people are all about education. But look at you, you're still doing your thing and you're still an inspiration to people. So I'm so glad you came on the show and I hope uh, someone reaches out to you and said, say that, you know, just coming on the show and listening to your story he or she was able to break through and just know that, you know what, it's not the end. So thank you very much. Thank you, UI. All right. You have a great day, and I'm, I'm keeping my eyes on Kenya elections, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, everything ends, uh, comes out peacefully and 
Kenya continues to be a beacon of peace in the in the region and in the continent. So have Thank a good you. one. Thank you. We are hoping the same too. Have a great evening. Is it evening for you? Have a great it's evening. Actually, it's actually almost five o'clock in the morning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness, I would not be as resourceful <laughs> that late in the night, but yeah. <laughs> no, we right do. I think that's very usual. Thank you so much, Yuan. I'm, I'm a true night owl. <laughs> All right, now, Wambo, you take care of yourself, okay? You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. you enjoyed my conversation with uh, Wamboi. I did. I learned lots. She's full of knowledge and uh, she's now made me intrigued to go to Mexico and experience the underground caves. I'll be including my findings of these underground caves in the show notes as well as um, most of the things that she shared in the show notes as well so that you can also experience it for yourself and uh, learn something. Also, in the conversation, uh, at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about the presidential election that the country was waiting for the result. And as of August 16th, which was a Tuesday, uh, William Ruto was announced as the winner. And uh, he was the deputy president in the previous administration and now there's the president-elect. So that's very good for the country that uh, everything went peacefully and there was no uh, form of violence. And um, hopefully there's also a good um, transfer of power, which would be a beacon of uh, hope and peace for the region. Well, with that being said, I will uh, talk to you next Monday, uh, as I always end every show. Do something crazy this week, take some risk, and uh, hopefully uh, the outcome is to your advantage. Enjoy your week. Take care. Bye-bye.